0: Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you, as always, by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit working to protect the ocean. I'm John Sherburn, the show's producer, and today's host is Colleen Beelitz. Today's guest is Hannah Bacon, who is walking over 2,000 miles from California to Virginia Beach because she was terrified after reading The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace-Wells. After evaluating her own carbon footprint, Hannah is on a mission to raise awareness about climate change and to support the Sunrise Movement for immediate climate action. Let's get into it.
1: Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Blue Earth podcast, which is a part of Future Frogmen, a nonprofit fostering future leaders to protect the ocean. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Bielitz. Today on our show, we have Hannah Bacon, who is walking across the United States because she believes in a sustainable future and is trying to bring attention to our climate emergency. Welcome to the show, Hannah.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Bielitz. I'm so glad to be here. Can I ask,
1: where are you right now?
0: Yeah, I am in <laughs> Friona, Texas, and I am inside a motel. So that's um a big change, an exciting change for me <laughs>
1: <laughs> well that that's that's wonderful. I'm glad that you're safe right now and have shelter. Um yeah. I always like to start the show by having our guests talk a little bit about their start. Like I want to learn a little bit about who you are and where you're from where you've gone to school. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, of course. I grew up mostly in New Milford, Connecticut. And uh, that's where I went to elementary and high school. And then I went to the University of Connecticut. I studied Spanish and human rights there. And after I graduated from UConn, I went out to California. I taught English as a second language there for a year at a middle school. And then after that, I started teaching at the Santa Cruz County Outdoor Science School, which is a wonderful school, um, outdoor school, where we would hike with fifth and sixth graders through the Redwoods and teach environmental science. So I grew up hiking and camping and my parents love being outside, but working at the outdoor school is really where I got my background, um, professional background in environmental work. Um, so after that, I was there for a few years, I came back to the East Coast and the job that I had right before doing this was working with New York City schools to help them become zero waste. So teaching composting,
1: recycling practices in different schools throughout New York City. Well, that is that is an amazing body of work that you've done because you've only been out of school for a couple of years. So you really yeah. kind of got into things. <laughs> yeah. I, I read that you were laid off from your job due to COVID. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So that was in New York. Um, I had just moved to New York City. Well, I was living in Brooklyn, but had just moved there in October 2019. Um, And I started working for Grow NYC, which is a wonderful nonprofit in New York City that um, they do the farmers markets across the city and a lot of different environmental programs. And the program I was working with was Zero Waste Schools Um, and New York City had a goal of becoming zero waste by 2030. So my program was, like I said, going into different schools and teaching zero waste practices, working with students and staff and custodians, um, the whole school system. And when the pandemic hit in March, um, you know, of course, schools closed down, and all non-essential businesses were kind of put on hold. So my branch of Grow NYC was unfortunately um, put on hold. And so, yeah, so myself and my coworkers in the zero waste schools were out of work. And after that, I had a lot of time on my hands <laughs> and uh, was looking for environmental work, but um, kind of unsuccessfully. Yeah.
1: And then I read that um, you picked up David Wallace Wells' book, The Uninhabitable Earth, on a flight from New York to California. Can you tell us why you picked that book up and then maybe for our listeners, the impact it had on you?
0: Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, with all with all this extra time that I had for losing my job, I had decided to um, go out to California just to visit some friends and keep doing my job search from out there. And my sister had read The Uninhabitable Earth and she was she had been talking about it for a while. And climate change is something that she and I talk about together a lot she's like, you need to read this, you need to read this. So I thought, okay, this would be great. I'll just, I'll read it on the plane, you know, some nice, easy reading. Um, But I was, as I was reading it, I was um, going through chapter by chapter, and he kind of takes you through drought and wildfires and things like pandemics, even all these different um, aspects of our life that are going to be affected by climate change. So I was reading it. As I was looking out the window on the plane and kind of looking down at our earth and thinking about the impact of my travel, which was totally non essential, and um, just feeling like I don't need to be flying and I need to be doing something more
1: right now. Yeah. And I love that you were looking out the plane window kind of down on the earth and then it kind of struck you like, oh, about, you know, your own traveling Um, Yeah, because often I talk about astronauts having the overview effect where they look down on the Earth and they just see it as one planet, you know, because that's where we all live and how they are often brought to tears once they come back thinking about all they have to do to protect it. And so, Hannah, you you are very ambitious. You're planning on walking over (laughs) 2000 miles and you started yeah. on november 1st and what made you pick this as your thing to do
0: <laughs> um well I, I started november 21st actually um and i you know <laughs> i had no plans of doing such a thing but then as i was reading the uninhabitable earth and then i landed in california mm-hmm. and uh one of my good friends picked me up from the airport and i was just like kind of in a in a tizzy i was like oh my gosh and there had just been all of the wildfires it was right after Mm -hmm. the period of wildfires in September, I landed in October. Um, So I was like, the earth is burning and we need to be doing more. And my friend says like, they had never seen me in uh, such distress. (laughs) Um, So yeah, a few days after I landed, um, I decided to walk because I had the time and I was doing, you know, in my everyday life, I recycle and I compost. And there's a lot of other things that I do to try to, limit my carbon footprint, but travel was one aspect of my life that I hadn't really changed. Mm. Um, I love road trips. I love traveling. I really, I get a lot of enjoyment out of it, but I realized that, you know, there's all there's sacrifices that we all make and that we all have to make. And that was one area that um, I hadn't really changed. So I was there in California and I was like, well, I need to get back East and um, I don't want to fly anymore.
1: Yeah. So how did you plan this out? I mean, you'll be walking most of 2021. So how do you map out that journey and how long everything's going to take you?
0: It was, uh, it was a challenge. (laughs) Um, I, uh, you know, I, I had a few, I canceled my flight home, of course, and I just stayed with some friends for a few more weeks. And I kind of Took over um, their downstairs with a road atlas, and I I cut out all the pages that I needed for all the different states I would need. I had them laid out on uh, this big dining room table, and I just started drawing my route, kind of based on weather since it is winter. Mm -hmm. Um, And I tried to choose the most direct route from my starting point to the East Coast, and kind of decided based on distance to water, um, distance to food and, uh, areas that I wouldn't freeze overnight.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. 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 So how do you decide like where to stay and what you're eating? I mean, that has to be a challenge. Yeah. Well, when I was
0: planning it, I, you know, it's so it's, it is so hard to plan such a big trip without, <laughs> without a defined trail, you know? Right. Um, so it was a lot of just like having faith that I would, <laughs> believing in the universe that uh, I would I would find something. But um, I would make sure that there'd be a gas station or um, some sort of little store within a day or two's walk. So when I looked at the whole big trip <laughs> from the beginning, if there was a stretch of you know seventy miles where it looked like there was nothing. Um, I might reroute around that or um do some research what was a day before that you know, if there was a supermarket or something right before that seventy mile stretch, could I carry enough water for those two or three days? Could I carry enough food? Um, so a lot of zooming out and looking at the big picture, but then zooming into specific towns and seeing
1: what they had and uh, I know why you were in California now, but uh, why did you decide to head to Virginia beach? um just because. For my route, it made
0: sense. It was kind of a straight shot from coast to coast. And it's close enough to uh, my family in Connecticut that once I get there, um, I'm sure they'll want to come down and meet me. But then I can decide if I want to jump in the car with them and drive back up to Connecticut or if I want to
1: walk from there. So it was
0: (laughs) close enough to home, um, (laughs) but would get me to the ocean
1: yeah now you're talking about your parents. I mean, is your family worried about you?
0: Um, yeah, they are yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are. But um, they're also incredibly supportive. and from from what I first told them, um it was, I think, a mix of nervousness, but they're very proud. and they they help me a lot from afar. So sometimes I'll call my parents and say, Hey, I don't have great service.' I don't know if there's a place to stay up ahead and they'll do some research from home for me and see what they can find and then um, send me some details. So they really like being involved. And that makes me feel good just knowing that I have a support team from afar and I think it makes them feel comfortable just being a little bit more involved in in the daily process.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I have to say, you're not my child, but I'm very proud of you as well. <laughs> you know, um, but I was reading, and you know, I was, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I was thinking about you and where you were going to be this morning. So I'm, like I said, I was happy that you had shelter. And y- the amazing thing is that you're donating funds that you raise to the Sunrise Movement, um, which is a youth-led organization that's holding leaders accountable and making strides for climate action. And for our listeners, your GoFundMe page is Miles for Climate. Why did you pick that particular organization uh, with all the different nonprofits that are out there? Yeah,
0: I chose Sunrise Movement because I've been following along with their work for a few years now. And um, when I was deciding, I really wanted to pick something that was youth-led. That's really important to me. And so they're youth-led, they're a national organization, and they have over 400 local hubs around the country. So it felt like a way to give back to the country as a whole, but then also to the communities I'll be walking through, um, since I do have locations multiple in every most states. So the fact that they're national and local, uh, that they're youth-led, and that their focus is on the Green New Deal and um, prioritizing renewable energy and creating jobs in the process. Um, that's something that I'm incredibly passionate about. Um, and they also really prioritize making sure that all different voices are represented in the conversation. So um, they're a really great organization, and I wanted to support them and work towards a Green New Deal.
1: Yeah, and that's wonderful. And I agree that it's a youth led organization, you know, just makes it that much more. Uh, impactful, right? Because it's the future of, you know, it's their future that they're worried about, that you're worried about, that we're all worried about, you know, this next generation. And I I read that part of your journey included the Mojave Desert and that several people told you that it was too dangerous to cross the Mojave alone. And they advised (laughs) you to skip that hundred mile stretch and take a ride. But instead... You reached out to the local environmental community and an experienced desert hiker agreed to join you and you both made it across in five days. Yeah. Five five days. Can you talk a little (laughs) bit about that?
0: (laughs) Yeah, um, that was, it, it was a great experience. And that was the only time that I, you know, I've had people join me for like a half a day or something just that passed me walking by, but that was the only time I really had company. this whole trip and it was wonderful. So um, the person that joined me is Travis Puglisi and he owns um, a hiking and expedition business called Wandering Mojave Hiking Services in the Joshua Tree area. So I kind of randomly was put in touch with him and I called him on a Saturday and asked him if he would want to join. The next probably an hour later he said yes and then the next morning at 6am we met and we were off. So Um, I was just so incredibly grateful to have him along because he knew everything that there was to know about the desert and I didn't have really any desert experience so right. it was it was incredible he told me all about the wildlife and um, plants and just kind of tricks for reading the land and it really set me up because then after the Mojave, I continued to be in the desert throughout Arizona and New Mexico. So it really set me up for success going, going forward. So, um, yeah, I'm incredibly lucky to have met Travis and have him along. So, um, it was a hard, it was a hard five days, I think Mm. just because it's dry and it's hot. And we were carrying each about two gallons at the beginning and we had somebody meet us halfway with water, um, because we only could carry about two days of water on us. So somebody else um, named John Loretic that we found through this whole kind of calling of environmental organizations, he works with Friends of Joshua Tree, um, he agreed to come meet us halfway and replenish our water. Um, But still most of the time our packs were the heaviest that they could possibly be and um, you're just kind of out there with no services. It's about a hundred miles before you reach any sign of humanity. So um, it was a challenge, but I'm so incredibly grateful that Travis was
1: willing to do it with me. I'm I'm grateful as well that you had a companion, you know, and like you said, somebody that kind of taught you those little tricks and things that you need to know when making such a journey. And, you know, people need to keep in mind that you've done all of this while also carrying Your camping gear, your food, your water. Uh, I mean, I I know you've faced many different setbacks, which people never really anticipate when they think, oh, I'm going to, you know, head out. Maybe you could talk about a couple of these, you know, some of the things that you've faced.
0: Yeah. So um, rerouting has been a big trend because, like we are talking a little bit before about the planning, um, but when you plan a whole big country, you know, it's different than when you're down there. In the, in the pavement, in the dirt, you know, on the ground. So um, the first reroute, which was a big one, I had planned when I was still in California to jump onto the Pacific Crest Trail for a little while. But um, I met a ranger who said there's too much fire damage. And it wasn't just that, you know, there might be a tree down and there's a little bit. She said, it is impassable. The roots have burned out and it creates sinkholes. So <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I definitely, you know, that's, that would be unsafe. Um, So beyond just being sad to hear that there'd been so much damage, um, I had to reroute about 30 miles. So that was kind of the first big hurdle. Um, And since then, I've had a lot of different rerouting. Sometimes my maps want to take me on roads that are private and um, like ranch roads that, you know, you never know if if it's going to be a friendly rancher or somebody who (laughs) doesn't want you on their property. And yeah, that was the first big one. Um, I've had a lot of blisters, which at the beginning were really hard um, by the end of the day, you know, I'm just kind of I not literally crawling but moving so slowly that I uh, might as well be crawling and probably would have been in less pain if I had been. Um, but from I've switched out my shoes a few times and the feet are getting better, so that's looking that's on the up. Um, but you know, your body just, gets tired after doing 25 miles a day consistently and d- kind of just different ailments. My shoulder will hurt one day and you know my legs and so on. Um, and I think the biggest hurdle of all has been the dog bite. I um, got bit by a dog in Arizona and yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> I didn't have any of my stuff with me. I had put it down and set up camp at a campground nearby and just walked down the street to go to a little market. And on my way back, a dog ran out and bit me. So I didn't have any way to kind of like fend it off. I didn't even have my hiking poles. So um, then I had to get in touch with the sheriff and they couldn't confirm the vaccine history. So um, I had to get myself to a hospital um, and then get rabies shots. And from there, then there were four other rabies shots, a series of four shots. So I had to make sure That I was close by a hospital on specific days. You had to get them on day three after the bite, then day seven, then day 14, and so on. So um, that was really challenging just to, with all my planning and the rerouting and everything to make sure I was near a hospital to be able to get the shots.
1: Oh, and, and were they painful, those shots?
0: Um, You know, they they weren't as bad as I think people um, make them out to be because I think they used to do it in the stomach, but I got it in my arms. So um, I was grateful for that because I had heard that it's terrible, but, you know, it wasn't fun, but it wasn't as bad as I've heard.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, now, Now you're raising awareness and, you know, I really want this podcast to be an amplifier to that message. Well, when you read the book, uh, Wallace Wells book, what were the scariest things that really stood out to you?
0: Well, um, you know, the whole thing, <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of points that were um pretty scary. But I think the urgency, the sense of urgency, um, is what stands out most. And I really suggest that everyone reads it and and I hope that um folks who are listening, if you read it, that instead of it becoming Um, something that causes apathy. I hope that it would cause kind of a, I like to call like a motivated kind of terror. (laughs) So um, yeah, it talks about how things like fire and drought and sea level rise, of course, are all gonna become um, more prevalent and uh, more extreme. It talks about how in certain areas of the country, drought and flooding will affect our food system And that was something I think that struck me the most because there's already so many places across the country and I've seen this coming across the Southwest that they're kind of food deserts and there's Mm -hmm. nowhere to get food other than like a dollar store or a gas station. Um, So he talks about how climate change is gonna affect our food and access to food. Um, So that was something that really stuck out to me but he also talks about pandemics and this came out right before the COVID-19 pandemic really hit. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a really interesting read, too, about how climate change is going to affect pandemics in the future. So um, I wouldn't say that there's really one thing that was terrifying as yeah. Just yeah, the, whole the, book. the whole book and uh, <laughs> the sense of urgency, yeah. really.
1: Yes, yeah, so I agree. Um, are you changing your carbon footprint now? Well, you know, are you making changes
0: (laughs) I uh, besides
1: walking across uh, the United States?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I hope so that that's the hope and the walking, of course, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not flying, not driving. And beyond that, you know, I'm just, I'm not really buying anything that I don't need. And I always like to live as minimally as possible, at least for the past few years. I've been trying to really buy as little stuff as possible because, you know, there's the packaging that probably comes from oil and there's, you know, did it have to get shipped either? If you order online, it gets shipped to your door, but if not, it probably got shipped to a store. And, um, so in that sense, I'm really only buying the food that I exactly need for each day. So, um, beyond just the not flying and driving, I'm buying less stuff. Um, I'm using less water because I'm, you know, kind of just out, (laughs) I'm not showering as much as I would at home. And um, I'm just using less resources and only living out of my backpack. So um, I think that living minimally is a really good way in general to limit your carbon footprint.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And I've read the uninhabitable earth and other books on climate change, and they all provide the same narrative, right? And the facts are crystal clear, the ice is melting at a higher rate than many first believe. The Earth is warming, right? 2020, another hottest year on record, according to NASA. And the sea level is rising. And in the book, uh, Wallace Wells, on page 25, states that if you had to invent a threat grand enough and global enough to plausibly conjure into being a system of true international cooperation, climate change would be it, right? The threat everywhere and overwhelming and total, And yet now, just as the need for that kind of cooperation is paramount, indeed necessary for anything like the world we know to survive, we are only unbuilding those alliances, recoiling into nationalistic corners and retreating from collective responsibility and from each other. The collapse of trust is a cascade, too. What is your message to listeners when you hear that kind of a statement?
0: Yeah, um, I think my message would just be to remember that we all can make a difference. And climate change is something that is, it should be a unifying issue. I think a lot of times, at least in this country and, you know, countries across the world, it becomes very politicized, but it shouldn't be divisive. It's our home. We all live here and we all will benefit from clean air, clean water, um, preparing for the effects of climate change. It's something that we're all going to benefit from. So remembering that it will affect each of us and to help each other, know that, and help each other um, to come together and make a difference because it shouldn't be something that divides us apart. You know, it should be really something that we can we can grow and learn together um, and put first.
1: Well, I agree. And besides the books, um, I've seen the documentaries, and one that comes to mind, and it came to mind when I knew I was going to have this call with you, is before the flood which was filmed in 2014, 2015. And if you're listening and have not seen it, you should. There's even a website, beforetheflood.com. And Hannah, if you'll indulge me, I just want to talk about the documentary for a second because Before the Flood was presented by National Geographic and it features Leonardo DiCaprio on a journey as a United Nations messenger of peace traveling to five continents and to the Arctic to witness climate change firsthand. And during the Paris Accord signing, ceremony, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio made the following statement in the documentary, and I'm going to read it to you. Um, I don't think he'd mind as we're trying to get the message out there. Mm -hmm. He said, as a UN messenger of peace, I have traveled all over the world for the last two years and have seen cities like Beijing choked by industrial pollution, ancient boreal forests in Canada, clear cut, and rainforests in Indonesia that have been incinerated. In India, I have met farmers whose crops have literally been washed away, and in America, I have witnessed sea level rise flooding the streets of Miami. In Greenland and in the Arctic, I was astonished to see that ancient glaciers are rapidly disappearing, well ahead of scientific predictions. All that I have seen and learned on my journey has absolutely terrified me. Now think about the shame that each of us will carry when our children and our grandchildren look back and realize that we had the means of stopping this devastation but simply lacked the political will to do so. Yes, we have achieved the Paris Agreement. More countries have come together to sign this agreement today than for any other cause in the history of humankind, and that is a reason for hope. But unfortunately, the evidence shows us that will not be enough. A massive change is required now, one that leads to a new collective consciousness, a new collective evolution of the human race, inspired and enabled by a sense of urgency from all of you. You can congratulate each other today, but it will mean absolutely nothing if you return to your countries and fail to look beyond the promises of this historic agreement. After 21 years of debates and conferences, it's time to declare no more talk, no more excuses, no more 10-year studies, no more allowing the fossil fuel companies to manipulate and dictate the science and policies that affect our future. This is the only body that can do what is needed, you sitting in this very hall, The world is watching. You will either be lauded by future generations or vilified by them. You are the last best hope of Earth. We ask you to protect it, or we and all living things we cherish our history. And, you know, Hannah, and I hate to get upset, but, man, it just saddens me when I read this because that was over five years ago. And when I read Wallace Wells' book on page 44, he mentions the Paris Agreement, (laughs) and that of the 195 signatories of which only the following are considered even in range of their paris targets and that's morocco gambia bhutan costa rica ethiopia india and the philippines so that's only 7 out of 195 yeah so i i know it stirs my soul because you know i have you know a 6 year old son and i want to leave this world better than it is now and what i where i see it going so what stirs in your soul when you hear something like that
0: yeah well thank you so much for reading that and um it's it really it hits me hard also and i think that the sentiment of we anyone who's an adult right now you know and and a lot of youth we have all the information we have all of the science to do something about it and i think that that was for me, wanting to do this walk and being passionate about climate change was something um, that I I don't want to be part of part of this problem that passes on an unsustainable earth. There's so many folks um, my age who believe that they inherited an uninhabitable earth. And, you know, and that was the problem of the generation older than them. But like you said, having a six-year-old and I have two nieces that are under the age of five we are now, unless we act right this moment and drastically, we will be doing the same thing of just passing on an earth that is becoming more and more uninhabitable. So yeah, it it really, it is the thought of our children and my nieces and the fact that we say we're, we say we're, we're making changes, but it's not enough. So yeah, I'm, I'm afraid for the young folks and the world that they're going to have to clean
1: up and, and hopefully be able to live in. But And you're right. It It is up to us, Hannah. And, you know, I thank you for doing this and bringing attention because all of us listening to this podcast, all of us that want a future for generations to come, you said it, we have to act now. And uh, I will say, even in the book, Wallace Wells writes, I know there are climate horrors to come, some of which will inevitably be visiting on my children that is what it means for warming to be an all-encompassing, all-touching threat. But those horrors are not yet scripted. We are staging them by inaction. And by action, we can stop them. Right? Climate change means some bleak prospects for the decades ahead, but I don't believe the appropriate response to that challenge is withdrawal or is surrender. And I love that he wrote that. And I agree that there's detours that we can take You know, that will lead us away from this destructive path. And, uh, maybe, if you can, would you like to touch upon some of those paths like uh you had yeah, you had mentioned some like consuming differently, what you buy, what you eat, how you get your power? yeah,
0: I love that too. It's like, um <laughs> that you he put a little bit of hope in us, right, um, that it's not too late, and I think that the most important thing that we all can do is to vote, always vote for people that will make radical changes for climate because um. We need systemic change, and the U.S. as one of the world leaders, we should be um, making serious changes so that other countries, you know, might feel inspired to do the same. So always vote for people that are going to prioritize climate change. Beyond that, flying less, driving less, traveling less, um, just using less fossil fuels is really so important. If you can, you know, of course, if you have to drive to work there's no getting around that but if you can bike or use public transportation or um, carpool if you feel safe considering pandemic Um, and if you can limit the amount of times you go to the grocery store just any sort of way to limit travel is really great consuming less like I was talking about earlier just thinking about the things that we need in this life it takes a lot of resources to create new things and most of our things that we have are plastic based. And that of course takes oil to create. So trying to consume less and teaching those practices to our kids and family members of you know, thinking twice before we need to buy more. Um, it's also really great to eat less meat. If you mm-hmm. are a meat eater, um, just start by trying to cut down a couple days a week, you know. One or two days a week, if you eat meat every day, and then from there, see if you can go beyond that, um, because meat, the meat industry, is uh, can be really damaging um, when yeah. not done sustainably. So, I think that those are those are big action steps that uh, everyone can work towards.
1: Yeah, no, I I definitely agree, and the meat, especially the beef uh, that people consume, uh, is really damaging. Yeah, uh, because of the methane gases. And I don't think people really understand that. So you're right that just to consume differently, what you buy, what you eat, how you get your power. And you're right. Vote for leaders who will fight for climate change, yeah. right? Ending fossil fuel subsidies, investing in renewables, mm-hmm. leaving fossil fuels in the ground, supporting a price on carbon, all of those things. That's what we need. And with yeah. that, I always end my podcast, um, Hannah, with a message of hope. So if you can, as you're making this journey and as you're seeing the beauty, literally, you know, firsthand as you're walking across this country, what is your message of hope that you have for our listeners? Yeah,
0: we live in a beautiful place and this earth that we all have, we all live on, it's our home and it's... It's a place that we can live symbiotically with, I believe, um, and I think that for walking on our earth every day, it's a really intimate relationship that I'm I'm lucky to have, and it's a place that we need to protect, and we need to protect each other. I have met the most amazing and wonderful people, and I feel really hopeful when I meet folks, no matter what their political beliefs are, religious beliefs, anything like that, when we can have a conversation about climate. So I think to anyone listening, a message of hope is that most people want peace and most people want an earth that is sustainable for their children. And I think we all have the power to come together and make that a possibility. So believing that we can make a difference and believing that each of our actions makes a difference and believing in the power of community and working together with our neighbors, um, that we it's something that we can do and something that we have to do to make sure that our kids can have a livable future.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I thank you for that message, Hannah. And I'd like to mention again, Hannah's GoFundMe page is Miles for Climate. Uh, is there any other uh, websites that you'd like us to talk about before we end the show? Hannah, I know you have a blog. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. So milesforclimate.org, that's my blog. And I try to update about once a week stories from the road. And if there's any Instagram users out there, I update milesforclimate, my Instagram um, most days. And that's just a fun way if you want to
1: follow my journey. Well, that's wonderful. The rising generation has a growing voice and a call for change. And everyone listening, please keep in mind, That while we still have a lot to do, there is still hope for us as we work toward protecting our ocean and our world. It's listeners like you, our ocean stewards and citizen scientists. You are the ones helping us make a difference by using your voice. The time for action is now. So please take a few minutes today to write a letter or email your member of Congress in support of strong action on climate change. Make it personal. Explain why you care about the issues you're writing about. Have a call to action. Ask them to do something about it include your address and other contact information so they know you're a constituent and they can call you or write you back, we need to hold our leaders accountable. It's that simple. It doesn't take much time, but it makes a difference. So please consider writing a letter today. I always think of Hillel the Elder saying, if not you, then who? If not now, then when? If you would like to donate to future frogmen or if there's a topic you would like us to touch upon or a guest speaker you would like us to have on the show, Please feel free to contact us at info at or visit our website. Thank you for joining us today, and please spread the word as we work to improve ocean health by deepening the connection between people and nature.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. You can find us at our website at futurefrogmen.org or on social media at futurefrogmen. We post every week, so until next time, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thanks.